My name is Jennifer McVeigh, and I serve as a team lead on the kids' team here in, um, <laughs> in preschool. I apologize. I got distracted. Um, somebody was waving at me from the back, and it wasn't a child. So um, <laughs> anyway, we are going to read from Proverbs 6, uh, 6 through 11, which in the Blue Bibles, which should be in front of you. If you didn't bring your own Bible, you're welcome to take that with you if you don't have one or just use it for now. It's going to be on page 590, and here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, so in honor and reverence for it, if you're able to stand, please stand and join me in the reading of the Word today. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jennifer. Good morning, Flourishing Grace. My name is uh, Jake Noyes. I'm a lead shepherd here. Um, and I'm excited that I get to have this opportunity to be up here and, and, and get into the Word with you guys. As many of you know, Josh Knight, our pastor of Preaching and Vision, is out on sabbatical. And so he's spending this summer really uh, not only spending a lot of time with his family, but resting, uh, growing in his relationship with Jesus so that he can come back refreshed and ready to lead us well. Um, so obviously, as you can tell, based on that information, that by my professional vocation is not being a pastor. I, uh, I actually work in the insurance industry, and in my role at work, my responsibility is to help early career young producers uh, build a book of business. And that's really just kind of a fancy way of saying that I help young sales folk who are not that good at what they do yet develop into more senior and, and talented consultants. And it's really interesting work, and I really enjoy it. And each week, I meet with everyone on my team, and we walk through the different aspects of the work. And ultimately, at this stage in their career, they're responsible for generating new appointments and writing new business. And in order for them to do that, I've set certain metrics for them that they need to meet each week. And I think that if they do those things, they'll be successful. Those things are things like, how many cold calls are you making? How many drop-ins are you doing? How many emails are you sending? And if you've ever had a sales job, you know that cold calling is the worst. In fact, I would say that for most people, the reason we don't get into sales or people don't get into sales jobs is because they don't want to do, do cold calling. And whenever I meet someone who says, gosh, I love to cold call, I think, I think you have a screw loose. <laughs> but the reality is, if you want to be successful in a sales role, you have to do cold calling. There's no way that you can be successful. You cannot be successful in any sales role if you're not willing to make cold outreaches. And the struggle I have is, like in most organizations, we have several people in my office who have been doing this for 20, 25 years. They're hyper-successful in their careers, and they make it look really easy. And the early career producers on my team, these, these kids, as we call them in the office, uh, they expect to have the same type of success that these, these guys who have been doing this for 20 years have without understanding or putting in the same type of effort that they have put in. This week, I was, I was meeting with one of my producers, and they said to me, they said, Jake, this job is just way harder than I thought it was going to be. And I said to them, I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? 
They said, well, I just haven't written as much business as I thought I would. I worked really hard all week, but I don't have much to show for it. What they were doing in that meeting, by the way, was setting up to say, I didn't set the number of appointments that you asked me to set every week, so they were letting me down nice and easy. And I said, well, let's take a look back at this week. I want to be sympathetic. Cold calling is hard. It is hard to set up new appointments. So let's look back at the week, see how it went. How many cold calls did you make? And the response was, well, I had a fire pop up with a client, so I didn't do as much as I probably would have done on a normal week. And I said, so how many cold calls did you make? He said, maybe 20. Okay. Well, how many drop-ins did you have? How many, how many times did you connect with someone in your network? Mm, I just was really busy. I, didn't, I don't think I actually did that at all. All right, how many emails did you send? Maybe 20, maybe 30. That's a really hard place for me because in my mind, I'm like, God, I wonder why this job is so hard. For reference, the expectation for those folks is that they make 150 outreaches per week. I said to that producer, I said, listen, you're right, this job is really hard, but the reality is, is that 40 to 50 outreaches a week is not going to make you successful. There's no way that if you're doing that little work, that it's going to ever cut it. So when you tell me that you worked really hard this week, I think it sounds like you didn't work really hard this week. And what happened with that individual is they just kept letting, letting other things get in the way. And it wasn't just that they let them get in the way, but they were actively looking for things to, other things to do. Most of the people on my team have 10 clients or less, which in our business is not very many. And so 85% of their time should be dedicated to prospecting. But what I find with all of them is that that work is hard, and so they end up finding other things to do to fill their time. They're not willing to do all the work that is required to be successful. And I don't think that they're alone in that. I think we are all guilty of that in our lives. We all have times that there's work that needs to be done, but we actively look to avoid it. And this work can take all types of forms. I think when we use the word work, what we're talking about, specific, we often think of vocation, and what we're talking about is physical work today, but we're going to focus on all manner of work and how God has called us to do that. So for you, it might be in an office. You might be in an office, someone who sits at the desk and answers emails all day. You might be someone who works outside and, and, and builds buildings and, and hangs drywall, or it could be also being at home, taking care of the kids, making sure that the house is in order. Maybe for you, it's other work that's outside of what you would call your vocation, and it's things like taking care of an elderly parent who's sick. It could be something totally different than those things, but what I know is this. We all have work. It's all hard, and at times it can be miserable and overwhelming. If you were here with us last week, you know that this summer what we're doing is we're walking through the book of Proverbs in a series called Kingdom Wisdom, and what we're specifically doing is examining the way in which God has called us to live our lives with a kingdom focus. Each week this summer, we'll be talking about a lot of different things. If you were here at this last week, Josh Gardner talked about, uh, he laid the foundation for what kingdom wisdom is. And later this summer, we'll be covering things like money, family, friends, discipline. But today we are gonna be talking about God's design for our work, our vocation. And before we get into that, though, I do want to briefly talk about what the Proverbs are and what they are not. I love the way that Josh described it last week. What he said was, he said, God uses wisdom from him to transform us to show us the world, excuse me, to show the world who he is, but also to help us be better and to show us what God intended for our lives. 
He said that wisdom is the, the practical skills for living a successful life. And just like I've laid out a plan for my team to be, hopefully be successful, the Lord has given us instruction in the form of these Proverbs that gives us these practical skills for living a successful life. But what the Proverbs are not, and I think it's important that we establish this when we're talking about work, is that it is not a promise of material success. Again, Josh talked about this last week, this idea that, that when we talk about success in the eyes of the Lord, when we talk about success in terms of the kingdom of heaven, it is not the same as this, what the world will define as success. Kingdom success is the expansion of God's kingdom. It's seeing more and more people follow Jesus, but it's also seeing followers of Jesus become more and more like him. That is not material wealth. The world will tell you it's material and will tell you that success is strictly material, but that is, not, that is in direct opposition of what the Bible teaches. And I want to just make sure that we're clear on that as we talk about work. Because texts like this can be misused to make promises of wealth. And I think one of the most dangerous forms of propaganda that we export in the American church today is that God, if you do this thing and this thing and this thing, then God will make you wealthy. But that's totally contrary to what the Bible says. In John 15, 18, it says this. It says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That does not sound like a life of luxury to me. So that isn't to say that we aren't going to get good things from the Lord. The Bible also teaches us that every good gift is from the hand of God. But as we talk about work, what I just want to be clear on in this message is that work is good and we're called to work, but it's not a promise of material success. So let's talk about what work is. Um, and vocation looks like in the respect to wisdom. There's three points I really want to cover today. The first one is that God designed work for us. The second is that God laid out instruction for what that work should look like. And last, that our work is to glorify Christ and his kingdom. And when we talk about work, sometimes it can be, you know, our vocation or our jobs, it can, it can sometimes be considered a dirty word. How many times have you been sitting at home watching a football game on a Sunday afternoon in the realization that, the, that real life starts again tomorrow? There's times where we, we're sitting there, or even today, you know there's some big project looming. And as I, it's, it's funny, as I started, even as I say that sentence right now, I, I, I feel that sense of dread punch me right in the gut, that tomorrow is real life again. But here's the reality of the situation, that God designed us to work, and he designed work for us to do. In Genesis, it says that we are created in God's image, and we know that God works. If you were here with us the past few weeks, you heard Josh Knight and Benger and uh, John Kang and my dad, Randy, all preach on Sabbath. And when we talk about Sabbath, we talk about rest. So the very need for Sabbath implies that there is work. In the creation story, God labors for six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. So he builds rest into the rhythm of our week. In John 5, he says, uh, when Jesus heals the man at the pool on the Sabbath, he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. I like the way it says this in the New Living Translation. What it says is, my father is always working, and so am I. In Philippians, Paul says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we know that God works and is working, and now obviously his work looks dramatically different than what our works looks like, but he is working today. We've also been designed to work. 
In Genesis 1.28, it says, God created man, when God created man, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Later in Genesis 2.15, he commands Adam to work and take care of it. Again, these are commands to work, and we cannot fill, subdue, and have dominion over the earth if we don't labor at it. And I, see that, I think that we get a taste of what God intended work for us to be in our everyday lives. I'm not, by any stretch of the imagination, what you would call handy. In fact, I think when I married my wife and my father-in-law found out how incapable I am of managing something as simple as a hammer, he wished that, we would have, that she would have chosen someone else. Our staff here is exceptionally skilled at a lot of things. Josh Gardner makes these incredible bookcases or Bible cases that you've seen. You've at least heard mine because I drop it out in the lobby every Sunday. John King recovers Bibles, and it's, it's incredible what, the, what they look like when he's finished with them. Josh Knight built me these beautiful bookshelves in my office. Lindsay does all this incredible stuff up in the, in the kids' ministry. <laughs> and then Benger's super good at math. Um, <laughs> So when it comes to being handy, I, if you were to put it on a scale of one to everybody on the staff, I would say that I'm like at best a three. And that's probably being a little generous. But at my house, we, we, just, accomplished, we just finished a really big project. And you're going to laugh at it, but it's, we have an above-ground pool. And you can all save your judgment, but I love this above-ground pool. And when we bought it last year, it was way more difficult to put up than I realized. When we started filling it last year, it was all wonky, and, and it was filling at the wrong angle, and we had, to, we had to do all of these different, like, put wood under one side and dig out underneath a leg just to try and get it kind of level. So this year, I said, we're going to do it the right way. So we went, and we, we bought a, or rented a sod cutter, cut out all the sod. I dug out three inches on one side of the yard and moved it to the other side. We tamped it all down, and when we put the pool up, I am so proud to say that we put the level on that string, and it was perfect. And I think, it, as a side note, I flooded my backyard when I was filling it yesterday, so <laughs> it wasn't like it went totally perfectly, but the pool is level. But in that moment, I was so pumped, and the reason was is because I think that when we, do, when we work hard and we do work well, as God intended us to, it gives us a sense of accomplishment, and I think that he wants that for us. I think it's in these moments that God shows, us how God, show, God shows us how he intended work for us. And we are going to also work in heaven. In Isaiah 65, 21, it says, they will build houses and live in them. And in verse 23, it says, they will not labor in vain. The difference is, work in heaven will not be full of conflict and stress, but instead it will be restful, it will be rewarding and fulfilling, will be satisfied that work by that work, just like I imagine they were in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. Because that's what happens. Just like with, with most things, when sin entered the world, it corrupted something beautiful that God had designed for us. In Genesis 3, after Adam had eaten uh, from the fruit of the tree, God says to him, he says this. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. The punishment for our sin when it relates to our work is that it is hard. 
And I think that's one of the reasons that we see work decline each and every year in the United States. In his book, Men Without Work, Nicholas Eberstadt says, millions of men in the prime of life languish in a state of economic inactivity and financial dependence, neither working nor looking for work. And he points out that since 1965, the number of people who have left the workforce has tripled. And it's not because they are looking for work and they can't find work, it's simply that they are not interested in looking for work. They aren't improving their credentials or they're not seeking out further education so that they can get a job. It's just that they are saying, I am not interested in working. And that is precisely the type of person that Solomon is talking about in our text. So now let's talk about the roadmap that God has laid before us and look at God's instruction for our lives. In this text, Solomon wisely instructs us uh, that what, on what our lives should look like, and we see God's design and intention for our lives. In, in verse 6 uh, in Proverbs, Solomon says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. And I think it's really interesting that Solomon chooses an ant to illustrate the value of hard work. Because don't get me wrong, if you, if, I mean, ants are incredible little creatures. Remember when you had that one friend with the, uh, the ant farm growing up? He was kind of weird, or she was kind of weird. Or you had the ant farm, and you were the weird friend, just so you know. Uh, you would look at those things, and you'd think, gosh, this is like a primitive civilization. They have, they have roads that are in the form of tunnels. They operate as a team and manage collecting uh, food and protecting the queen and caring for their eggs. They are, they are amazing little creatures. A few weeks ago, I was digging out in my backyard, and there was a and I stumbled upon an anthill. And when I, once the, my spade hit the dirt and dug it out, there was just hundreds of little eggs. And within seconds, it felt like millions of ants came out of the ground. And they, within a few minutes, they had moved all those eggs back underground. It was incredible how quickly they accomplished their task. But ants are also at the bottom of the food chain. When you think about an ant, they're very common. They're very simple. An ant, as amazing as that ant is, it's no match for, for a boot. And I think that's, uh, it's interesting that, that Solomon didn't choose something, you know, like a wolf or a lion or an elephant, something else that lives in a herd. There's all these amazing, incredible creatures that he could have chose from, but he specifically chooses an ant. And I think that it's, that it's such an interesting juxtaposition. And I think the reason that he does that is, in, in a way, it scoffs at the sluggard. He chooses this, this little creature who's, who's insignificant, but is self-motivated, organized, hardworking, accomplished. And he compares that to a human being who is lazy, undisciplined, and unmotivated. And, in, and what he does in that moment is imply that the ant is better than the sluggard in, this, in the way that he works. In verse 9, it says of the sluggards, it says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? So when he's talking about the sluggard here, he's describing someone who is habitually lazy. I like, again, in the way it says it in the New, the new Living Translation, it says, but you lazy bones, how long will you sleep? But this isn't just someone who is lazy sometimes. This is someone who is categorically lazy and lazy in thought as well. Proverbs 13.4 says of the sluggard that it is a person that wants much but gets little. So when we're talking about this person, we're talking about someone who not only doesn't want to work hard, to do the necessary work, to put in the effort, but, but expects to get the same results as someone who does put in great effort. And we all know someone like this. We all, we all have that friend that's always trying to get rich quick, right? 
The one that, has, that tells you this month it's this thing that's going to work, and then next month it's going to be this thing. They always have a get-rich-quick scheme going, and it's always going to get them ahead, but of course they never work. Because the problem isn't that with the scheme, the problem is the effort and the work ethic that the person has. The reality is the reason that it never works is because the individual is unwilling to work. They don't work hard. If they did, they wouldn't need the quick-fix solution. And when I think of the ant, or what, what Solomon says of the ant in verse 7, is he says, the ant needs no chief officer or ruler to tell it what to do. When the ant wakes in the morning, it isn't waiting for instruction. It just starts moving forward. Its very survival depends on it moving forward. There's no time to be idle. In verse 10, he says of the sluggard, he says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. A habitually lazy person is someone who looks for reasons to put off what needs to be done today. They make excuses for the work that they're not doing. They're actively looking to push things down the road or kick the can down the road. I talked about someone on my team who acted this way, but the reality is I'm totally guilty of this. The, one of the worst times I ever put something off was when I was in college. And I, studied, I was taking four literature classes at the same time, and at the end of the semester, there was, we were supposed to turn in a paper of 25 pages for each class. The idea was that we would spend the entire semester writing them. So within the first three weeks, we'd selected our topics, we'd started, uh, we'd started looking into the text that we were going to write about. And each week, we were supposed to carve out time to work on those papers. But instead, what I did was figure out other things that were more important for me to go do. Things like, oh, you know what, I got to run down to the ball field and I got to throw today. I got to go to the gym. I want to go hang out with this cute girl, right? Those were all more important than the papers. And then, until the due date came, and it was the, ver the last week, and I had to write 100 pages in four days. And a wise person would not have done that. And that's what Solomon is saying of this, saying, he says of the ant, she prepares her food in the summer. In the present tense, the ant looks at what needs to be done today, and she does it. She isn't looking around for what else she could do or trying to find something that would be more gratifying in the moment, but instead is preparing her bread. She isn't, she isn't saying, just one more minute. She does what needs to be done today. And the result is, she gets a successful harvest. That's the last thing that, I, that, that uh, Solomon uses to describe the sluggard, that they're unprepared. In verse 11, it says, And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Because the sluggard hasn't taken care of what needed to be done today, they aren't able to prepare for tomorrow, and the result is poverty. Again, that isn't to say that if you, are, if you work really hard, you will be, that your material success will follow you. You could be the, the, the highest performing person in your organization, and the, the company could close tomorrow, and you're without a job. But what I, what, what I am saying is that if you do not work at all, there will be no result other than poverty. The ant, on the other hand, is prepared for the upcoming season because they spent the summer doing what needed to be done so they could prepare for the harvest ahead. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say this, uh, but I think we can also apply this to our spiritual lives. When we look at wisdom like this, there's often multiple applications. So when, while Solomon is talking about hard work and vocation specifically in the text, I think we can, we can apply it elsewhere. John Cain is going to talk about this in a few weeks, but it, but it really reminds me of spiritual discipline. If we are lazy in our relationship with Christ, we have no hope for growth with him. 
Now, that, I'm not saying that our, we are saved by our works. We're not, I'm not saying that we are saved by the things that we do. We are only saved by Christ and Christ alone. But if we want to have a flourishing relationship with Jesus, it takes effort. If I'm actively looking for other ways to fill my time rather than spend time in the Word or spend time in prayer, then how can I expect to grow with Him? How can I, be expect, to, how can I expect to be prepared for the day He returns? So, we go back to the text. That all begs the question, what is our motivation? Why has God called us to work? And the answer is to glorify him. See, unlike the ant who has no ruler or chief or prince, we do. We are working for the Lord. In Colossians 3.23, it says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Our work is for the glory of Christ. When we realize this and we work for his glory and we find our identity in him, our work also brings us joy and happiness. God created a work for us and us for work, but not so that our identity can be wrapped in that work, but so the ident- our identity can be wrapped in him. And this is true in all aspects of our life. When we don't align with what God has called us to do, when we aren't confident in who we are in Jesus, we find ourselves dissatisfied and unhappy. So when you look at your work, remember that God has called you to that work. Whether it's sitting in an office, or it's educating children, or managing the household, whatever it is, God uses it for his glory. In his book, Proverbs, Wisdom That Works, Ray Ortland says of the church, now he's, talking, he's, he's using the word men, but he's speaking to the church. He says, a church filled with men energized, men working, men engaged, men with intensity, men of conviction and action, that is what the world needs to see in us today. But to display Christ that strongly, we need to humble ourselves and admit our need and accept God's simple remedy. So here's the reality. No one in this room is perfect. We're all going to fail at this time and time again. I know there's times when I am lazy. I know there's times where I'm not doing the tasks I need to do so that I can prepare for the future. I know there's times where I don't perfectly represent Christ in his kingdom. But this isn't a call to do more work, but instead to reorient the work in our lives towards Christ. To realize that what we do matters, not just because Christ loves us, but because he wants to see as many people follow him. And our work and our vocation is often the best gateway to show people what makes a follower of Jesus different than everyone else. Our workplaces are often, regardless of whether they're, they're uh, formal or not, they're often the places where we spend the most time with people, which means there is no greater opportunity to share the gospel with them, to show the gospel to them, not just in our words, but in our effort. And so my question to you is, does your effort at home or at work match what God has called us to do? Because we've all met and know individuals who claim one thing, but we can see in their actions and the way that they work that, we, that, that it's not validated based on what they're doing. So, two quick things as we go about our week. The first one is, how do we, how do, we do this? How do we accomplish this? So the first one is to go to the Lord in prayer. Just like if you had a manager or a supervisor and you were building your career path, you would go to that person and ask for guidance. The Lord will do the same thing for us. 
Ask him to remind you that your work is an act of worship and that he has called you into that work. In Ecclesiastes 9.10, it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Ask the Lord to be reminded that you've been placed where you are intentionally and that the work that you do is for his glory and his glory alone. The second thing I think we need to do is figure out what things are detracting from our effort. We need to identify those, control them, or eliminate them. For some of you, it may be things like sitting on your couch scrolling through social media and watching the hours, hours vaporize in front of you. For others, it might be, it might be literally spending too much time resting and, and sleeping. For others of you, it might be the, the wanting aspect. It might be looking at the house you can't afford or the car you're never going to get and spending all your time thinking about all the things that you want instead of putting in the effort of the work that you need to do today. So I, I ask you, what is it for you? Spend time in thought today, spend time in prayer today, and asking the Lord to illuminate what it is the things that are getting in the way of your being able to put in the effort required to fulfill the calling that he's placed in your life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these men and women and the opportunities that we have uh, to share and sh spread the good news. And God, I pray that for each person in this room, that as we go about this week, that our effort would match what the, the calling that you've put on our lives. That, Lord, that we would see our work as a gift from your hand and that we, we, that we would do it uh, in a manner that brings you glory. And we say these things, Lord, in your name. Amen.